Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Life of a Song, a monthly music podcast from the FT. In each episode, we explore the biography of a different song, its origins, the various cover versions, the song's evolution. This month, we're going to be talking about Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights. How could you leave me when I needed to possess you? It was released 40 years ago this year, and it was the first number one song written and performed by a woman. I'm David Cheel. I edit the Life of a Song series, published in the Weekend FT and online every week. With me in the studio to talk about Wuthering Heights are FT pop writers Jude Rogers. Hello. And Helen Brown. Hi. Jude recently wrote a Life of a Song piece on Wuthering Heights. So, Jude, where did the song come from musically? So, Kate Bush was a quite unusual character in many ways at the time. She seemed to just emerge from nowhere. You know, she was this sprite that's <laughs> with this crazy voice that just appeared. You know, that's how she was characterised in, in many respects. I've argued in the piece that the song did have very clear influences um, from pop culture before that. Bush talked about how influenced she was by David Bowie, mm-hmm. um, who wrote similarly wild, strange songs, you know, while he dressed in a very unusual style, uses androgyny or whatever. I've also mentioned um, in the piece your songs from, you know, the psychedelic folk era. It always strikes me that you hear a song like White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, and that's a song about Lewis Carroll. It's about strange, mystical literature, but it was sort, that was sort of pigeonholed as psychedelic music, you know, not as mainstream. But this suddenly comes along and it's very strange. Um, I think it's strange because of who Kate Bosch was, because of her voice, mm. because of her boldness. Um, and that comes from her background, which is a very comfortable background. She was the daughter of a suburban doctor and his nurse wife. They lived in a nice farm uh, just on the edges of London in Welling in Kent. But it was wilder than that, wasn't it? I mean, it although, was although wilder. He yeah. was a suburban doctor, but he took surgery in a floral smock. <laughs> I mean, he was, they were, they were full educated. of the pre-Raphaelite stuff. and you know. Absolutely. So they lived just off a kind of um, suburban yeah. street, but just off in many other respects just as off, well. Yeah. yeah, they had a very interesting you know, um, childhood, the Bush children. Bush was um, the youngest child. She had a brother 14 years older than her. She had a brother mm. six years older than her. And there's a great biography um, of her by Graham Thompson called Under the Ivy, which details this very strange <laughs> bohemian life they have together where, um, 
you know, the house is full of goat skins from the Scottish Highlands that they've picked up on holiday. I mean, they lived in character, didn't they? They dressed up all the time. So the idea of this artist who went on to write songs in character is no surprise. They were listening to folk music, but murder ballads, flinging on crazy boots, Mm. nine sizes too big for them, you know. Yeah. And and she'd been writing songs since the age of 13, hadn't she? Yeah, the the fact that they had, when they say they were comfortable, you know, they were financially comfortable and they also allowed their children a chance to do whatever they wanted. She loved playing piano, and so she'd just be playing piano for six or seven hours and wouldn't be disturbed. She had time to develop her own mm. style. And, you know, you hear Wuthering Heights, it is a style that feels very much... Not not dictated by normal rules, really. And the well, fact the that piano she was... was her escape, wasn't it? I mean, also in the Graham Thompson biography, he talks about how you know she was made to play the violin, and it was very much yes. go and practice your violin, Kate. But the piano was the place where she set herself free. That was her rebellion, her escape. And you mentioned that she seemed to appear from nowhere. And my memory of of uh, Wuthering Heights is it's similar to there are a couple of other songs that came out in the seventies that you know the sort of those I was there moments. The <laughs> Wuthering Heights was one. David Bowie's star. Man was another, and and Sparks is. Um, it's a media this, event, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, this town at beginning. You know, it's the one where you're talking about it at school or yeah. at work afterwards, the day after. But she kind of didn't spring from nowhere, did she? Because she was nurtured quite carefully by her record company and by. And David Gilmore played a part in this, didn't he? He did. Yeah. So her oldest brother went to Cambridge University, and he was friends with somebody who knew David Gilmore, and a shortened version of it. And um, you know. David Gilman eventually got some of her songs. They weren't in a... You know, she started writing very young. They weren't quite ready, but he, at this time, obviously it was in Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon had just come out. And um, he decided he was to have some pet projects to develop in the studio. And Kate Bush was one of them. This was 1973, 74, I think. Mm. So she was, you know, 15, 16. And some tapes were made and sent out and they didn't do anything. But eventually he funded a session in Air Studios in North London, the the famous studios. And, uh, you know, she had... And, all, you know, she had strings and the best, you know, the acoustics there were wonderful. So she had the environment. So she recorded the song uh, at the age of, uh, what was she, 18, 19, when she, when she wrote Wuthering Heights? It was one of the last things she wrote before the first album came out. So she yeah. already had lots of other material. So this was the summer of 1977 and it came out yeah. in January 1978. And Helen, can, can you imagine today a record company sort of nurturing a talent like that for for that amount of time. They seemed to know... I mean, they knew they had something special. People Mm. kept saying, we have something special here. I I think there's the idea that back in time that happened. I don't think it did happen to everyone back in time. I think she was a special case. She was always... I mean, also, her youth meant that, you know, she was nurtured in a different way. She wasn't put in with, you know, different songwriters to slightly change her or modify her. And she was very... um, there's a quote um, from the time that she said, I'm the shyest megalomania- megalomaniac <laughs> you'll ever meet. And um, she was very determined. She argued for Wuthering Heights to be the first single. She mm. did like the cover art and they changed the cover art. Yeah. And this idea of an 18-year-old woman doing this is... Pushing mm. for... Con- brilliant. She, yeah. she, she <laughs> pushed for control and there's a sort of ridiculous story about how she got Wuthering Heights to be the lead single by bursting into tears, which is such a patronising thing. She's always denied that. Yes, mm. yes, yes. <laughs> And maybe this is a good time to listen to the song that the EMI wanted to be the the first single from the album, which was uh, James and the Cold Gun.
good song, but it's, it's nothing like as striking as uh, Wuthering Heights. It's a much more conventional mm. rocker, isn't it? Yeah. It feels quite yeah. glam. Yeah. Well, I'm rock. It feels yeah, it's that um, rumty-tumty sort of beat. Yeah. It's quite male. It's got the stomp, hasn't it? You know? Yeah. And she was all about the undulations and the femininity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So she fought for Wuthering Heights to be the lead single, and, and she won that fight, and it was released, actually. I think they delayed it because a, a, a Mull of Kintyre was at number one for a... For a few weeks, wasn't it? They said it was the only time they'd that a record label had ever sort of asked people not to play it on the radio. Then, <laughs> but <laughs> yes. at release, is saying, actually, can you hold off? Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think? What is it about her that was so unusual in, in terms of you know people listening to the radio or seeing her TV? What what was it about her? Initially, it was that voice, wasn't it? Mm. And it wasn't her natural singing voice. I mean, I think that's why it sounds as extraordinary as it does. And people sort of talk about hearing her in the school choir and describing her as a foghorn. There was nothing special. And at the time she was recording Wuthering Heights, she was going up the octave. She was actually stretching her voice just as she was her body in all those dance moves. So there is a a, a weird, wild, ethereal quality that was coming out of her. I also think there's something about when you first saw her on Top of the Pops. You know, she hated her first Top of the Pops appearance and didn't do a lot of TV, didn't do many TV appearances in her the early days of her career. But, um, you know, she was not what people expected. Women, young women, were supposed to be confessional singer-songwriters, really. And here was somebody, you know, singing these deeply poetic, you know, mystical lyrics, you know, based on a Victorian novel that... At the time, it was on the A-level syllabus, which is quite nice. But, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's one of those books that people loved or hated. It was complicated. It was strange. Um, people didn't expect that of her. And I think because she was a woman and she just stood out, she was beautiful as well. And, and she was in command of that sexuality. I mean, that's why yeah. she didn't like those publicity photos in the era of her in the pink leotard. You know, mm. it was a sexuality that she was very much in control of. Yeah, mm. you know, the fact that she was beautiful and she wasn't silent. She was yeah. very loud and very uncontrollable you know people couldn't control her really that's mm. what she expressed I was born in April 78 so I can miss Bush <laughs> but um <laughs> you know when I first heard her you know a lot later I think the first song I heard of hers was Wuthering Heights and it still made that impact on me then there's something about the wildness of her of her vocals that cut through I'd have been 19 when it came out and so I, remember, perfect age. I remember being sort of amazed and stunned but also a little bit scared as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, she's a scary character. I mean, that's mm. the thing, you know, she's t- embodying the character of Catherine Earnshaw in the book Wuthering mm. Heights. And, I mean, Catherine Earnshaw is a wild, difficult, violent, bit sadistic character. Mm. So, you know, there's a reason to be afraid, although I think Kate Bush hadn't read the book when she st- sort of first got interested. Yeah. In it. She yeah. based it on this Timothy Dalton TV series, <laughs> which is a nice, campy, catchy touch. Because she's always said, you know, people think of me as an intellectual literary writer and I'm much more interested in the telly. Yeah, and those <laughs> moments of kind of like, those moments of inspiration or yeah. high emotion or whatever. So is it, a, is it a feminist song? I don't know if it is a feminist song. I think... Uh, her coming along when she did, it's, it's interesting to think of it in hindsight as a a moment where a woman was being accepted by the mainstream and people buying her records in, you know, huge amounts when she was doing something that was so unusual. I think we can characterise it as a feminist moment in that respect. You know, she's somebody who didn't wear her politics on her sleeve and, you know, the only polit- political statements I know she's made is, you know, a couple of years ago when she talked about liking Theresa May. You know, it's very easy to kind of name check these moments as feminist moments when I don't know if the intention behind them was that in some respects but she did want to give voice to this female character who was unconventional 
uh, one of my favourite stories about the song is how um, she was known as Cathy as a, as a young person, as a child, um, and became Kate when she was older. She decided she was going to yeah, be Kate. Yeah, kind of her relaunch. Yeah. Her relaunch, yeah. Um, and so obviously she was kind of burrowing down into that kind of childhood wildness as and, well, which comes through that first record. And it's that, I mean, that's what Wuthering Heights is about, isn't it? You know, that they're, that Cathy and Heathcliff's love is the love of the rocks beneath. You know, she describes Catherine Earnshaw's love of um, Edgar Linton, who she marries in yes. the book, is the, the trees and the foliage that will age with time, but my love for Heathcliff is the rocks beneath. And that's what, I mean, that's exactly what Kate Bush is mining straight down into. It's her identity, you know, her the depths of that and her English and Irish roots she's channeling straight down into. Absolutely. She also has the same birthday as Emily Bronte. Yes, she does, which is amazing. <laughs> just, Always nice connections. Perfect little coincidence. I have read in the past um, people, uh, critics writing about how, you know, she wrote about things that young girls didn't really think of. I'm sorry, when I was 18, I was exactly the right age of Wuthering Heights. <laughs> I had been wild and shouting and kind of yeah. emotional. You know, it's 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 <laughs> not, it wasn't, you know, an 18 year old doing something that 18 year olds don't girls don't do it was just out there and purely unfettered it mm. wasn't whispered about in bedroom she was shrieking it on the moors <laughs> yes, which is yeah, fantastic yeah. <laughs> so we always talk in these in these podcasts about the life of the song that's gone on afterwards and we'll talk in a bit about the so curious afterlife that Wuthering Heights has had in terms of the the sort of videos and reenactments and such like but in terms of cover versions not many people have actually tackled it have they and and, and it it seems fairly clear why because it's so so intrinsically identified with Kate Bush yeah. and actually hard, very hard to just to recreate that voice. I think because we know Kate Bush's style and that particular song so well from pastiches and parodies, because it's very easy to take the mickey out of it. You know, this crazy woman and a strange song and a strange voice. And people probably know it better from seeing... Uh, Steve Coogan singing it um, in his Alan Partridge incarnation. Yeah. You know, very, very entertaining. <laughs> and Kate Bush really liked that as well. She can see. She's got a great sense of humour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is the woman who had a prince on one of her songs and then decided to put Lenny Henry on it as well. You know, <laughs> she's kind of done somebody who doesn't um, fit, you know, rules and um, pretentious rules, I guess. Um, Pat Benatar did a version of it a couple of years later, a much beefier, rockier version. Maybe we should have a listen to that now. your view of that it's it's a little bit more conventional isn't it it's all right (laughs) i mean you know i think uh, pat benatar got a grammy award for the vocals on that same album a couple of years after uh, the original came out not that song but the the same album Uh, but it's it's just a bit that she's not done anything very interesting with it has she i think she's taken the the flight out of it it's all earthbound and and it's it's guitar-y rather rather than piano led isn't it it's guitar stomp there's none of that magical piano there's there's no rise and fall in green there what really it really reminds me of is um, you know Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart which is kind of taking that kind of wild crazy woman and kind of making it very you know um, conventional rock opera Um, and Kate Bush herself did um, did re-recorded in 1986 for her for her sort of greatest hits album didn't she and she did the recording is a little bit different maybe we should have a have a listen to that version 
I guess the big difference there is the drum sound, isn't it? It's a very identifiable, recognisable 1980s sort of echo-laden drum. Yeah. It's that big, that big all-enveloping sound, which I think Kate Bush deserves. I mean, it's where she mm. found her home in the 80s, wasn't it? It's when she mm. yeah. control of the Fairlight synthesizer and sampler and all of that. I mean, it's it's the big sound she was after, really, and didn't have the technology for at the time. It's the version I heard first. I remember getting Kate Bush the whole story on cassette mm. with my first Walkman. So to hear it through headphones, mm. you know, that, that was my first time of being sort of at once sucked into a whole world of, of music with through the headphones completely separate huge emotion it was just fantastic mm. i find her relationship with the song really interesting thing to think about because obviously in the early days you know this was the song she wanted to launch a career it said so yeah. much about her whether it's because it had this link to kathy as she was and uh, the personality she wanted to express through her music something very different to what maybe the record label wanted but you know, in later years, the fact that she did re-record it, you know, I prefer the original version because mm-hmm. I feel like that vocal is a little bit more mature and it's a little more controlled at times. I like the kind of feral early, you know, yeah. streak <laughs> of it. The whoosh of it, yeah. Yeah, and also what's interesting, when she did her concerts um, in 2014, um, this is the song that people always think of as the Kate Bush song. Name one yeah. song, It Is Wuthering Heights. Maybe running up that hill a kind of close second. But she... You know, there was no sign of it in those concerts. Uh, there was very little of her early career in there. Yeah. You know, yes, she's a different artist. She's changed. She's matured. She's in her late fifties now. Um, she's sixty later 60s, this year. Yeah. 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 Um, I remember with the reviews of it, a few people saying, "Oh, she didn't do Wuthering Heights." And I thought that production of those concerts, and I, you know, I, I went along. Um, I went along and. I had a four-month-old baby. It was the first time I'd left the hu- left the oh, house. Wow. I think I went to see Kate Bush um, reviewed it for Pitchfork's website in the US, and I thought it wouldn't have worked there because this is about her career in a in a different way, really, mm. about her looking at her career now. And Wuthering Heights is very much as the song of a young woman. It's pinned to it's pinned to a teenage moment, isn't Definitely. it? And mm. I don't think, yeah, you you'd want to be, you know, it's not how you feel as a fifty-five-year-old woman in love. Her performing it wouldn't. Just be true to the spirit of the song. Also, I'm not sure if she'd be vocally capable of it. Yeah, that's true. Her voice has changed a little, yeah. So another band who have been brave enough to take on the song uh, were the Papini Sisters. Ooh, it gets dark, it gets lonely On the other side from you I find a line of I find a line falls through without you sort of postmodern jukebox territory. Pastiche of, of classic songs. There's no content in it or emotion. It's, it's like, just background. Oh, it's so, you know, it's awful without <laughs> you. It's drooping, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Drooping is exactly what it is. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, she's come out of, like, Kate Bush came out of that raw, wild folk tradition. She's brought sort of a primeval kind of emotion into a rock territory, and then they've just turned it back into elevator music. Mm. Mm. You can't <laughs> Shut the moors in an elevator. Don't do it. <laughs> do you think it has a novelty value at all? I think it was because it was so out there. Because Helen's absolutely right. Because it sort of came from this primeval folk tradition. You didn't expect things like that to go to number one within a month mm. of being released. But it had this connection with people. But people couldn't really process it. And mm. I think that's why it's become 
you know, people have gloried in it. And, you know, there is humour in it. And there's humour in Kate Bush. You know, there's this humour in seeing this young woman kind of doing something so wild. But, you know, thinking of the later comic parodies of it... You know, I think there's there's a lot of affection in Steve Coogan's Alan Partridge for the Kate Bush mm. songs. Um, and Noel Fielding as well. They and adore, Noel Fielding. They adores her. So. Yeah, I, I've realised I, I basically have the same taste as Alan Partridge in my music. You know, <laughs> a bit of a Kate Bush, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, that's me. Mm. But um, what I've really loved in recent years is this succession of um, reenactments of the video of Kate Bush, which actually, you know, they're about having fun and glorying in the... The, the, oh, me the and my best it. friend, we used to we used to wait till everyone had gone out. We pull the curtains. We would wrap ourselves in sheets and fling ourselves around the lounge to this. Yeah, and it's fun <laughs> and it's enjoyable, but it's not just now. People are doing it in public. But... People are doing <laughs> yeah. it in public, and they're doing it in a in a, in a way that's um, it isn't being mean about it or slightly um, dismissing yeah. its value. So, in, ca- in case our listeners aren't, aren't, <laughs> aren't aware of these of these reenactment, reenactments, I think well to go back, there were two versions of the video, yeah. weren't there, for Wuthering Heights? There's the, the UK one where she was dressed in white and in a studio, and but there was the American one yeah. where she was dressed in a in red and in a sort of country setting, and the dance moves were very different between the two of them. Yeah, and people have taken. The, the 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 red dress version and reenacted it in various locations. I think it started in somewhere in Brighton. Did it with with an event called Shambush? Yeah, there, it was yeah. at the. Uh, there's a company, a performance art group called Shambush, and um, they did it at the 2013 Brighton Fringe. And what was great about it, it was men and women taking part. So you know, men dressing up, you know, beards, hair, yes. you know, red dress, lipstick, and you know, 2013. You know, we're at the height of viral kind of um, culture online memes people sending stuff and this went around the world very quickly and people picked up on it and other people wanted to do it it's really taken off in Australia which is I've always I find quite interesting you know she was a big star out there she was in a lot of places around the world in Canberra and Melbourne there have been several events and what's interesting is they've also become fundraisers for local charities Mm. specifically looking at uh, issues to do with women domestic violence and so these joyous reenactments have been used for a charitable purpose which is quite mm. lovely and she's got I mean, she's got long standing links with australia she went and visited it by boat as a child the bush family i think looked yes, at moving out there and then she's got the um, aboriginal songs on the dreaming so she's she's got a deep spiritual connection i think to mm. australia she certainly connected with that and i would say that the reenactments go back earlier than the Shambush thing because I I was a geeky member of the Kate Bush fan club and in the 90s I went to the Kate Bush convention uh, oh, wow. at the Apollo yeah you just literally you can't, I'd never I don't think I'd been to London on my own before with my friend Steve we were both completely nutty fans we, we sort of came out of the tube station it was just like follow the crimped people <laughs> that, there are our tribe and literally I mean she appeared actually she showed up herself which was an amazing thing she wow. showed the line the cross and the curve she showed up just I mean we just couldn't believe she was there but most of the the whole day at the Apollo in London was a disco and people just getting on the floor Kate bushing away there were some I mean quite excruciating performances and some <laughs> solos and some guy who I think surrounded himself with candles and sort of blew it all out it was and it was absolutely you couldn't have made it up the parody <laughs> But she's always had that. She's always provoked that response in people. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of karaoke, isn't it? But because yeah. Wuthering Heights is almost unsingable to to, to, <laughs> to, to, to mere mortals, it, yeah, my maybe it's, will tell you it's that. a way of you know, 
with a pop star, you always want to imagine that's me up there, you know. So if you can't sing it, then you can, you can dance well, I think it the instead. difference with Kate Bush is that maybe with Bowie or something, you wanted to be Bowie. If you're, if you're, you know, I've got a friend who does a hilarious uh, uh, Mick Jagger impression. He wants to be Jagger. With Kate Bush, I think what's interesting is you don't want to be Kate Bush so much as you want to be Kathy or the, mm. the heroine of Babushka. You, you, she takes you. And she always said she wanted to put listeners up against that wall to intrude. So I don't think you actually want to be Kate Bush so much as mm. you want to be the character she's singing at the time. Yeah. And that's part of the song's power. Yeah. I'm not a, you know, an expert and dance she strikes me as a as a good dancer not a brilliant one because she had you know some association with with Lindsay Kemp but perhaps the fact that she's not a great dancer makes makes her kind of more approachable you know I I can do those moves kind of thing it makes me think about um musical movement classes I used to have in school you know it's kind mm. of that it's not it's amdrammy isn't it it's, it's very amdrammy and it's also you think of the late 70s this is the time of disco and punk basically so mm. you have disco dancing um and you have punk you know, shambling about basically, mm. and she comes in the middle and she's like doing something that's so different to both those styles. That's very, in some ways, very individualistic. You know, it's so responding to the lyrics particularly. It's very childlike again. Yeah. You know, it's kind of reminds me of you know watching my son just dance around to a record and she yeah. has no form or no shape. But you know, the, the fact that she'd studied mime and she was trying to pull out again something primeval and weird and strange. Yeah. Um, yeah, it did. People responded to it. I love the fact that um, lots of punks actually really liked John, Kate Bush because she was so John, different. John Lydon was a huge fan. Massive yeah. fan. He's a huge fan, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, he wrote her a song, didn't he? <laughs> did he? Yeah, it's something called like it's something about like a bird. And he, she, I didn't think he got a response. And she, she might have thought he was worried that she thought the bird, oh, the bird in the hand or something. And he was worried that she might have thought it was about her, but it was actually about the import of South American parrots. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Good. Well, thank you. Thank you, Helen, and thank you, Jude. Uh, I think that's about time to to wrap up. Thanks to my guests, Jude Rogers and Helen Brown. Uh, You can read previous pieces by Helen, Jude and me in a book, The Life of a Song, The Fascinating Stories Behind 50 of the World's Best Loved Songs, published by Brewers. We'll be back next month with another episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.